Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey guys, it's Johnny and welcome to episode 239 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm sitting here live in Chiang Mai, Thailand with one of our speakers for the upcoming Nomad Summit, Josh Summers. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Johnny. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to everything. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, I, I've already taken a look at your talk. So we have all of our speakers send in a, like a, basically a full video of the entire talk yeah. so we can review it, we can tailor it to the audience to make sure they get the most out of it. And it's cool for me because I get to see the entire talk and not really miss out on anything when I'm busy running around during the conference. Yeah, no, I mean, and that makes a lot of sense too. It was good to, to uh, get feedback as well because, um, you know, I wasn't able to make it to the, the last one. I, we just, my family just moved here to Thailand. And so I wasn't able to make any previous ones. And, it, and it's kind of good to hear, you know, you sent some videos from some of the past ones. And that was definitely helpful. I'd like to see what's been done for. Yeah, cool. So if you guys uh, haven't seen any of the, the talks, go to, YouTube, type in Nomad Summit, and we publish all of our previous talks for free on there. But I think a big benefit of coming in person is, first, it's an excuse to come to Chiang Mai, which is an amazing place. Yep. And then second, it's the networking, like meeting like 400 other digital nomads, location independent entrepreneurs, and then meeting guys like Josh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm... I'm so I live actually, we were talking about this as we were coming up here. I live in the south part of town. And unfortunately, all of the co-working spaces, all of that is up here in the northern, northern part of the town. So I, I don't get that much. I, I just rented an office down there just to make it easier for myself. So I don't have to travel for 30 minutes each way. But, um, yeah, I am looking forward to kind of that, that networking aspect of it that I miss out on, even though I am here in Chiang Mai, surprisingly. Yeah, I, it's funny because I actually used to live in that same neighborhood uh, in Hangdong. I was right by the past the big big C, I think. Yeah, yeah. I was at a little Muay Thai camp there called KC Muay Thai, which I don't know if it's still around. Yes. But even though I was technically in Chiang Mai, I would only come into the city like once or twice a month, so it felt like I was in the middle of nowhere. Oh, absolutely. So my family came. We we had just spent a year in the U.S., kind of just spending time with family. And I was under the impression when we were coming to Chiang Mai that we were moving from where I was at, which is in Texas, a very suburban environment. And I was like, oh, we're moving to Thailand. This is going to be urban. It's going to feel like, you know, some other urban places I've been at. But you're right. You kind of go down there and I, you know, I, I kind of have to have a car for my family. I can get along with a, with a scooter, but with a family, I've got to have a car. And, you know, we, we live in a neighborhood and it just feels very suburban. But I bet you it's a super nice neighborhood, super nice house, and I'm, I'm I'm curious how much you pay for what you live in. Yeah, um, I don't mind saying I we're for us it was important. We brought our dog with us from from the states, so we got a massive golden retriever. What was that process like bringing a dog to Thailand? That was something else, and I'll tell you what I am not as attached to that dog as my wife is, but I love my wife, <laughs> and so. Um, it was, it was a process. It can be done cheaper than the way we did it, but I've never brought a dog overseas before. And so we paid a service in Dallas, which is where I'm from. Uh, and they, you know, you got to go through this process of getting the dog checked, uh, getting all the vet records going. And then of course going through, um, what do they call it? Customs or, uh, quarantine. I mean, there isn't a, a true quarantine time, but like, for instance, when we flew here, we flew straight from Seoul to Chiang Mai. Well, our dog couldn't come with us because do all animals have to go through Bangkok. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and then there's certain rules about how many hours a dog can fly. So she actually had to go through Frankfurt 
And then, and so in all, I think it cost me about $5,000, Wow! but it was door to door service. So, um, yeah, if my wife ever listens to this, honey, that's how much I love you. <laughs> yeah. I would have just did the, the cheaper service of taking a photo of my dog, sending it to someone in Thailand, be like, give me a similar looking dog. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, like, babe, I told you that that flight just messes up the dog. It's a new culture. It's a completely different personality. It doesn't even respond to its name anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's been, for my family, I got two boys, two young boys. And for my family, it's been a really good thing to have kind of a little bit of sense of normalcy. Like they had that dog since she was a puppy. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not... That wasn't a financial decision I took lightly, and it's not money that I normally would throw around like that, but uh, for our family, it worked out. Yeah, I've heard uh, once you have kids and you get married, like the, your priorities completely change. And, and some people say that – it was in a movie. It said something – I think it was – the movie's called Anna. It's, a, it's a, like about some Russian spy. I haven't seen it. It's really good. I've watched it on the plane here, and this they basically oh no it wasn't that it was Hustlers with uh, Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> I watched so many movies on that plane, but basically she she had a line saying, um, "Once you have kids, you become insane." And, and it wasn't in a bad way, but it was just that your priorities change so much that some of the decisions that you make financially or lifestyle wise to someone who doesn't have kids may seem crazy or insane, but it, we just don't understand. Like that, that bond that you have, you just like, you know, I'll do anything. Yeah. Uh, I think having a family, specifically having kids forces you to think beyond yourself. Right. And, and to think to myself, you know, what, I mean, even, even going so far and this is going like probably even deeper than we want to be going at the moment, but like, what, what is the legacy that I want to leave for my kids? Um, well, how do I want them to, uh, remember me, but also how do I want to leave things to them that will that will benefit them in the long run, whether that's financial stability, whether that's, um, you know, hopefully some wisdom that I can gain in between now and whenever I pass away. But yeah, it, it just, it forces you to think beyond what was just, you know, what I need and what, what helps me. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And to be honest, I think I, I almost wish I was ignorant to it. And I didn't think about it so much because now I really sit down and, and I try to weigh the pros and cons of, having kids and having a family. And because I've been thinking all those things, I'm like, right now, like when I look at it financially or um, what I have to give up, you know, either time-wise, lifestyle-wise, responsibility-wise, it's a, such a big investment. You know, it's like saying, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to buy and spend $2 million over my lifetime and you know, 60 hours a week for the rest of my life, you know, for this trade-off. And if it was anything else, if it was to buy a business that costs that much and that much of a time commitment, I'm like, there's no way. I don't care what the reward is for it. I just want to do it. But with kids, from everyone I've met who has kids, they're like, yeah, it's true, but it's worth it. And and, and I can't yeah. explain why. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. And I mean, I guess you're right. In, in some ways, if you were to like think about it logically – is it, it depending on what your goals in life are? It may not make sense. And how old are you, Johnny? I'm 38. You're 38. Okay, so we're we're about the same. Like for me, I didn't get married. I mean, I got married early, but we didn't start having kids until I was 30. And I don't re like I don't regret that time. Like as a matter of fact, I feel bad for those friends of mine that like got pregnant during their honeymoon, you know, in their early 20s because we did. My wife and I got to travel around. We went to Mexico, we spent a lot of time in China, you know, we've been to Thailand. 
Um, and now I get to introduce that, you know, now having gone through that and, and been to those places and experienced a lot of things, I get to share that with my sons. And now, you know, hopefully it's harder when they're younger, but when they get older, hopefully being able to like do some of these things together. Um, I've, I've like, I've done some, some YouTube videos where my son will do it with me and he has a blast. He loves it. How many kids do you have? And how old are they? Uh, one seven and one had just turned three. You know, what's funny is I didn't, this is why I like having this podcast be so unformatted and unscripted is because I, you know, I was originally going to have you on and just talk about like business stuff, but I always know that there's so many interesting topics because everyone that I meet while traveling, especially successful entrepreneurs, location independent, you know, digital nomads, we have such variety in our lives and we all, we've all had to overcome some kind of hardship, whether as a single person, you know, maybe it's just quitting the job, packing your stuff, selling, you know, selling everything, moving here. But as a family person, there, it just multiplies. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to what you'd asked earlier, um, my, uh, my monthly rent for the house, just to go into like what it, yeah, what it costs to have a family here is 25,000 baht a month. And that's, that's actually on the cheaper end of what I saw for some places. Some places were asking 30, uh, sometimes 40,000. And I know, you know, some of these apartments go for 7,000 a month. I don't know the smaller. I mean, I could not for the life of me fit my family in a small apartment, but yeah, I'm sure. But yeah. So I just did the, the conversion. That's $827 a month. Yeah. Uh, it, did it come furnished or is yeah. it, do you it, have a contract? It, like it came furnished. Um, and again, this, this goes back to the, the, the animal thing. We had to find a landlord that was willing to allow us to have a big dog, not a little dog. And Ty here, or at least in my experience so far, have been very hesitant to want yeah. to have a dog, uh, as part of their, you know, lease. And so she agreed that if we, you know, promised to clean the house and have the, you know, the, what do you call the drapes professionally cleaned after we left that she let the dog in. So, so that was a plus for us, but we got a great view of the mountain uh, outside of my balcony on the master bedroom. We've got, we can see from the second floor out over a, um, a rice field and it's, it is, it's beautiful. And that's, that's nice. I enjoy that. Yeah. And even though we make it sound like hanging down is so far away, <laughs> how many miles is it actually from here? Yeah. I mean, if we were on a, like in Dallas or LA or something on a highway, it would take us all of like five or 10 minutes to get between <laughs> the two. It's just the traffic on Hangdong. Um, I mean, it's probably only five miles, I would guess. Yeah. Right? It, it's crazy. It, 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 this five mile buffer here in Chiang Mai seems so far. It, it seems insane. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, par you know, partially it is that tra the traffic. Yeah. But even then, it's not that bad. Like, how many minutes did it take you to get here? And how'd you get here? Yeah, I just rode my scooters about 25 minutes. I made a quick stop, you know, to get something. But yeah. Yeah. In Texas, would anybody consider a 25-minute drive long by any stretch? No. I'm No, definitely not. I mean, most people have a commute. I've got friends that commute 45 minutes to work. And that just blows my mind. That's so, so much time on the road. When I, I, I remember a few years ago, I went straight from Thailand to visit my friends in Houston and I was starving, you know, a long plane ride, just got there and they're like, you hungry? I said, yes, I'm, I'm famished. Let's, let's go eat. And I said, all right, you know, we know this great place is down the road. I think the, the I think those are the words they used. And we got, <laughs> on, you know, we went down the road on the freeway. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm excited. And we're driving and we're driving and we're driving 
And we're going like, you know, 80 miles an hour, yeah. right? And time is passing, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. I'm like, where the f, f are we going? And they're like, oh yeah, like it's this great spot. It's called, and then they named the, they named the restaurant. And I was like, didn't we pass one of those 10 minutes ago? And they're like, yeah, but this one's better that we're going to. <laughs> and I thought they were insane. Yeah. I mean, we literally drove 35 minutes just to go eat. Yeah. And for them, it's just normal. Yeah. And here we're complaining about a five-mile drive. No, I completely agree. So where I I lived in, in China with my wife for about 10 years, and I love uh, – granted, we don't necessarily get to do this here in Thailand as much, but, but where we were at in, in China, just being able to walk out. Like I think you can do that from here where we're at in your apartment where you can just walk out – and you can get, you know, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. You can go to a coffee shop. Like it's all within just five minutes. And I, and I love that. That is so neat. After this interview, we'll, we'll walk around the neighborhood. You'll like it. Okay. You'll see why I live here. It's yeah. literally within a five minute walk. There's probably 20 or 30 coffee shops, maybe like 40 restaurants, fresh fruit, basically everything you want. And that's why I live in a small studio apartment right in the heart of Neiman. As like a single bachelor, you know, if I had kids, yeah. there's no way you can have sure. you know, a bunch of kids here unless you get, you know, maybe two or three units side by side. <laughs> <laughs> Just shut them up in their own room. Yeah, it could yeah. work. If they're a bit older, that would have worked, actually. Yeah, I'm sure that wouldn't be too bad. Yeah. Um, but how big is the, the house you're living in? Oh, gosh, I don't even know square foot. It's a two story. It's got three bedrooms. Yeah. Um, for us, it's the perfect size. And, and where, what city were you living in in Texas? In Texas, I'm from Dallas. Okay. Yeah. So Dallas is nowhere as expensive as like New York or no. LA or California. No. But how much would that equivalent like house cost in Dallas per month? Well, so that equivalent house, that would probably be about $1,500, right? It, it really depends. So we part of the way that we fund that house in particular is we've got two homes in Dallas that we bought, that we lived in, and then we now rent out. Um, and one of them goes for 1500 one of them goes for 1800 a month. And then, you know, after we pay for all the, any mortgage taxes and upgrades or we need to, then we just take a monthly chunk out of that to pay for this here and it all works out well. So now that, yeah. that's smart. That's yeah. really smart. So anyone who, who's listening back home and you're thinking, well, I would love to move to Thailand where I love to travel, but I can't afford it, but you have a house. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Just rent it out. If anything, now you have free rent in Thailand, but also you get a monthly income, which could probably pay for all of your living expenses because food and transport here are so cheap. Yeah, no, exactly. That's worked really well for us. And and I wasn't necessarily by design that I did that, but um, we, we actually tried to sell one house and it just wouldn't sell. And then someone asked if they could rent it. And that was while we were moving out to China in that time. And I was like, you know, well, I mean, it's worth a try. And they stayed in there for four years. And it was four years that I didn't have to – just it felt like free money the whole time. Now, obviously, it is. It is. I mean, we still have to – you have to pay for things. And, and obviously, I had to upgrade some stuff once they left. But um, but overall, I, I love that, that concept of um, having those rental properties kind of support our ability to live here. I remember when I finally saved up enough to put a down payment on the house and I thought – this is what I should do. This is what my parents want me to do. This is what everyone's ever told me, you know, the American dream is. And I sat down and I really just did the math. And I realized that it's great to own property to rent it out as rental income, but to actually live in the property, we almost always lose money on it. Yeah. And so the kind of smart financial move 
is really to own your house or own rental property for income and then just rent wherever we live. Yeah. No, I mean, it's been said many times before that your home is not an asset as long as you're living in it. As long as you're living in it, it's a liability. I've got to pay for the taxes. I've got to pay for the upgrades and, and it's bringing me in no income. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently has to do with, um, you know, I, I tend to, it's one of the things that I'm going to talk about in, in the talk uh, at the Nomad Summit is this idea of buying and selling businesses and what is the value of a business based on its income. And I was thinking about that in relation to the houses that I have, right? Um, so truth be told, I've paid off both houses. Like they're, they're mine free and clear. Um, so which means that, um, if you were to calculate out the monthly income versus the capital that is currently tied up in that, it's, it only comes out to like two, three percent a year. Whereas if I were to take that same money and invest it into a business that makes 10, 12%. And so I kept on wondering, uh, and this is of course like a, a dumb moment for me, but I kept on wondering why in the world does everybody talk about investing in property? And it dawned on me, it's because you have to have that component of leverage. Like, so in other words, I could take the money, the, the equity that I have in my house. And if I were to pull that out and buy three other houses and have a mortgage on them, but, but then have that cash flow, then that, that, you know, percentage, uh, over year over year would be a whole lot more than just having the entire house paid off and then taking that entire money as, you know, an income. Does that make sense? That definitely makes sense. And that's actually something I've been pondering a lot. Uh, I have another podcast actually called invest like a boss that yeah. I have a co-host with. And one thing that keeps kind of coming up in my quarterly updates is I feel like I'm missing out by not you know, buying a property and having the leverage on it. Yeah. But at the same time, I would never buy, let's say, stocks or index funds or something with leverage on it. That would be insane. Yeah. I could, and then I would have even higher returns than real estate, but it just is a terrible idea. While with real estate, it's normal. And maybe, you know, people, maybe like the, you know, real estate market in general is a bit more steady. So it's probably not going to drop, you know, by 50% or more. Yeah. Like, you know, unless you just happen to be in a really bad housing bubble and, you know, in a, and you get unlucky. And in general, houses appreciate, at least with inflation. Yeah. You know, maybe you might get lucky and get more, which is why, you know, it's okay to take on a mortgage. It's normal. And, you know, mortgage interest rates are usually pretty, pretty much, much lower than if you're going to like leverage stocks or something. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it's kind of like that same that same thought of, well, if I was going to take out leverage to get higher gains, why don't I just take out leverage like an SBA loan to buy a business? Hmm. Or why don't I, you know, trade on margins to buy index funds? Yeah. It, it, it all would work. Yeah. No, I've thought that same thing. And for me, even if I were to do that, one of the things I didn't realize when I started, you know, I, I bought my houses in Dallas, obviously, because that's where I was. But Texas doesn't have... Uh, state income tax. So they make up for it in property taxes. Mm, that is high. It's so high. It wouldn't, it makes, like, I don't understand. I, I don't think there's probably many smart investors that like do investing in, in Texas over other states. Like, you know, I was looking at some houses in Oklahoma, which is just above Texas and, you know, annual taxes would be like $400. Mm. Annual taxes on one of my houses is $7,000 a year. Yeah, it's insane. 
And it's, and so, yeah, I mean, that wipes out, it's no wonder that my, you know, the rents have to be so much higher, I feel like, because uh, just to pay for the taxes, it costs me $500 a month. And the only saving grace with Texas right now is that the property values are relatively low compared to California. Yeah. Because imagine if a three bedroom, two, you know, two bath house in Dallas was a million dollars or 1.5 or 2 million, like in California, yeah. and you're still paying you know what was the what's the property tax rate per, per year around? Oh gosh, I don't. It has to be know. more than three percent, I think. Yeah, and and in California, it's like one point five or something, one point seven five or something. I, I don't know because I actually I don't own property, but I for my yearly Christmas gift, yeah, I've I saw been that. I've been paying my mom my mom's uh, property, property tax. Taxes. Yeah, yeah, and thank God. Uh, the property taxes in California, like the percentage is relatively low. Yeah. And because they've been in their house for so many years, uh, it's locked in at a lower rate from, you know, like 10, 20 years ago. Nice. So it's still, you know, I think $3,700 a, a year. But if they had bought a new house now yeah. for a million dollars, it would be, you know, three times that much. It'd be 10 grand a, uh, a year. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, we have a joke in Texas where if you see somebody coming in and buying a massive house, they're either, um, they're either, you know, independently rich or they're Californians because <laughs> they've sold whatever they have in California and they can't believe that they can get such a big house in Texas. And so they just spring for this big house. But yeah, it's, it's funny how many Californians are migrating into Dallas. I mean, there's a lot of company headquarters that are kind of moving out that way right now anyway, but it's a smart move. I think that. The smarter move would be to move out of the U.S., like yeah. what we've done. But if you have to stay in the U.S., leave California. Like, <laughs> seriously. Like, why would you pay 9 or 10% state income taxes on top of your federal income taxes, have your housing expenses be ridiculously high, and just have, you know, it just, it's not worth it anymore. I yeah. think it, it used to be worth it. Mm -hmm. But in 2019, 2020, you must be insane, unless you're in tech and you're making you know, 300 or 400 grand a year, or you have a company that you have to be there. But in general, like there's no reason to be in California anymore. No. And I was, as for my business, I was going to be hiring a guy who was in New York and I started talking to my accountant about it. And he was looking into like all the, we'd have to file at a state level and then we'd have to file the business, which is located in Dallas would have to, if we were to employ somebody who's, who's remote in New York, I'd still have to, you know, do all that stuff on a state and a, and a, um, uh, city level and then pay additional taxes on top of that. It was going to be insane. And I just couldn't do it. California just passed a law where they no longer allow freelancers in California. What? And I think they did that because there were too many companies that were hiring people instead of full-time and having to pay them benefits of just having them be contractors. Yeah. I think that, that was the point of it. But it also just destroys that whole remote work yeah. infrastructure there. So I'm, thank God that I'm not a California resident anymore. I'm actually a Texas resident. Are you? Wichita Falls. Houston? Oh, Wichita Falls. <laughs> wow. And the funniest thing is, okay, so first off, I've never actually been to Wichita Falls. <laughs> and second, I didn't know how to pronounce it when I first signed up. Like, Because <laughs> I did everything online. I, I did it. I, I, I flew into Austin mm -hmm. uh, for a New Year's Eve party. And yeah. while I was there, I was like, you know what? Why am I paying taxes in California? I haven't lived there in two years. I've been yeah. living in Thailand. Let me just see if I can just switch over everything while I'm here. Mm -hmm. And in that week, I got a bank account. I got a legal domicile, which is a RV park 
spot <laughs> in Wichita Falls that happens to afford my mail as well. Okay. And I remember being on the phone with uh, some bank or something to change over my address. Uh-huh. And I said, yeah, so my new address is 1530 PB Lane, Wichita Falls. <laughs> and they're like, uh, you mean Wichita? And I'm like, yeah, yeah that's where yeah. I live. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce my own hometown. Yeah. That's not, so that's not, it's not a virtual address. It's a physical place. Yeah. So I knew that if I wanted to do this legally, I couldn't just have a PO box. Yeah. Like, or a virtual mailbox. I had to have a legal domicile with a lease agreement and a place where I can technically leave my stuff and and set home. Interesting. And the workaround, I was like thinking, there has to be something. And and this was something that hasn't really been done yet with nomads. It's either completely virtual mm-hmm. or, you know, you have a house or have a friend's house. And I was thinking, well, who else needs the service? Like, like um, there, there has to be something out there. And I realized retirees who RV around the U.S., they need to have a home base. Yeah. And, you know, if they're from Texas or they want to base in Texas, it you know, there has to be these these services. So I found there's two of them. One's called Escapees RV. One's called Texas Home Base. I'm sure there's some other ones out there. Yeah. But yeah, what they do is they say, okay, you know, you can live here. We'll rent you a RV spot on our our land because mm-hmm. in Wichita Falls, land is you know free. Yeah. Right? Yeah, lots of it. And said, okay, like that's your spot. Okay. You, you own that. Here's your lease agreement. And then if you get any mail, we'll take care of it for you. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, I, so is your, do you have a business that's registered in Texas or do you have, is your business outside of, or so just your own? Right now it's in Wyoming. Okay. Another state I've never been to, <laughs> but I probably should have just done it in Texas to make it easier. Yeah. But I think I had the Wyoming LLC before I moved to Texas. Yeah. I mean, I set mine up in Texas. I mean, obviously, cause I lived, I lived there, but it, um, like I haven't, there's not any extra taxes like you would have in California. Like California would be probably the worst place to set it it's up. It's insane. And like for, you know, in case the IRS is in this, I like, I've been saying this for years. I have no intent of ever living in California again. <laughs> I probably talk you know more trash about living in California than anyone. Yeah. You know? And so whenever I move back to the US, if I, if I have to, and I'm sure I will one day, it's going to be Texas because, you know, no state income tax. Yeah. It's. Yeah, you know, like property property values are so low. If I ever wanted to buy a place, yeah, like I can actually afford it in Southern California, and just yeah. like it's a nice place to live. It's like it, yeah. I really think it's one of the best states in the U.S. Yeah, and it's not like Wyoming where you would be in the middle of stinking nowhere. You yeah, know, like there's there's actual big like Austin's an amazing city. Dallas is, a, I think, a really cool city. Houston is, yeah, it's all right, but yeah. it's good. <laughs> well, I was originally going to move to Austin. And I had a bunch of friends that moved out there. That yep. was kind of like the new yeah. spot. And I I think compared to the other options in the US, it's a great place. Yeah. But compared to like Thailand or yeah. you know, even like parts of Mexico, there's so many better places to live. Yeah. And and way cheaper too. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean Thailand is a is I'm I've only been here now for five months, so I don't have a whole lot of experience to draw from other than just trips that you know, being here. But, um, yeah, having lived in China for 10 years, like it, you can, you can live in Asia extremely low cost and, and have a lot of fun with it. Where in China did you live and why, why did you move out there? 
So my wife and I first got married in first got married. We only got married <laughs> the first time and only time um, in 2005 and moved out to China in 2006 just because we wanted to like it was it was part of our, our deal before we got married. It's like I I really wanted to have a family and she really wanted to live overseas. And so we made a compromise and we said, well, we'll at least have one kid and we'll live overseas for a couple of years. But why China? How did you guys choose that? It was we actually both spoke Spanish. Um, we'd studied Spanish all through college. I had, you know, studied abroad. We'd both studied abroad in Costa Rica. Um, but nothing came up. Like the, the Peace Corps wanted a full year in order to just place us. And we were like, we want to, we want to move now. Um, we were kind of ready to get going. And the only, like we, it was just one of those connections of a connection said, Hey, we've got this school out in the middle of nowhere that needs teachers. Um, would you like to go? And so, we, you know, yeah, we can try that for a year or two. We ended up staying for four. We're, so I don't know how well you or anybody who's listening to this knows like the Chinese geography. China likes to talk of their, country is like a chicken where you got the head of the chickens Beijing okay. and then then you got the tail on the back end which is faces like Central Asia we were right in the tail so I was we started about an hour away from Kazakhstan um, you know I visited the border of um, Tajikistan Kyrgyzstan like all of those because it's an area that just it borders a lot of Central Asia it's called Xinjiang and uh, that's where we stayed pretty much the whole time we were there. I didn't have any interest to go to Beijing or Shanghai, uh, Hong Kong, all those. I, we just, I mean, I traveled there, but, but we lived out in the Western region. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. I can, I can imagine life there is way different than in Beijing or Shanghai or any of the kind of, you know, big cities that, that most of us think about where we go to. Like, what was it actually like, what was it like living out there? And what, what were you doing for work? Were, were you teaching English or? Yeah, what? we both taught English and that, that was a good, like, I, I, I now know that I'm not built to, to teach English. Like I don't enjoy doing it that much, but that's what we did for the first couple of years uh, until I was able to open a business and, and, and do work there. But it, going out to where we were at, we were the only foreigners. Like, I think there was one other foreign couple, uh, in a city of, you know, it was a small city in China, which was 400,000 people, which I think is, um, Bigger than Chiang Mai. <laughs> I'm not sure how many people are in Chiang Mai, but I mean, in China, that's considered like a, a really, really small, small place. Yeah. And for anyone who hasn't looked at the episode cover or assumed by the name Josh Summers, Josh is not Asian. Oh. Big Texas looking white <laughs> guy. Yeah. So, I mean, we did. We would get a lot of stares from people. I mean, we're talking about an area that hasn't seen foreigners. Like, you know, you walk around Thailand or you walk around even most parts of China and most people won't bat an eye. But it, this was 10 years ago in a very somewhat remote part of China. Yeah, we were like we'd be called in just to be the entertainment for a wedding, you know, oh, just, wow, just yeah. because they, they thought it was – that cool to have a, a white person for some reason yeah. go in there. I think and, still and it's like that in some places. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, other parts of, of that region, um, it's, it's pretty multicultural, but where we were at, it was, it was very homogenous. And so we stood out. So thinking back to that first year you were living there, did you guys adapt pretty quick? And we were like, this is great. We're going to stay. Or was it a struggle? No, it was a struggle. I think what helped was we both kind of made a commitment to each other that we were going to do it for two years because we knew that like from having lived and traveled that it was going to be hard to adapt. And so if you're, 
if you're already predisposed to throwing in the towel, I, I think it's kind of like marriage where if you go into marriage going, oh, we'll see if this works more than likely you're going to get divorced. But if you go into marriage thinking, all right, I'm, I'm going to be committed to this, then you at least have a better chance. So I, I shouldn't try to do like a 90 day trial. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I mean, we came into China with kind of this commitment of two years. And I think after the first year we started to get hit our stride and that's when it got a lot of fun. You know, when you really know a city and when you know the people and you've got your shops and they know exactly what you order and it just becomes a second home. And, and what did you like about living there? What was kind of some of the the benefits or the highlights? Well, I think to me, one of the benefits of being out in that far was just the uniqueness and, and the mystery of it. So like you read most uh, travel guides, they don't really touch on that area very much. I mean, it, if you can imagine, the, the one region was the same size as California, Texas, and Nevada combined. Wow. Right? And yeah. so it's a huge place. And, you know, most like Lonely Planet would, would have like 10 pages on that. And you've written now some like really best-selling guides to that that area, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, I like to think of it as a, a big fish in a really small pond. So it's a best-selling guide just because there there's only two others that I'm competing with, really. But um, but yeah, it 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 was one of those things. I remember sitting down, and this was a kind of a pivotal moment for me, even in my business, where I was sitting down with the Lonely Planet guy who was coming in. And uh, he had, he had found me online because I had just been writing about the region, and we sat down and we t sat over coffee. And I realized after about thirty minutes of talking with him, he's going to try to cover this whole. He's never been here before. He doesn't speak the language, and he's going to cover this whole region in two weeks and write a chapter about it so that other travelers can get. I'm like, I've been here for two years already, and I don't feel like I'm qualified to do that. So after a couple more years, you know, finally of four or five years, I felt like okay, now I feel like I've got I've got the experience to actually write this out. And I did. And, um, and I loved just the process of, of creating that and meeting a lot of people in, along the way. But I just can't believe that, you know, that's what Lonely Planet writers do all the time. Well, that's their budget. I mean, they, yeah. they don't have time to spend four years in a place. But yeah, yeah it's, I mean, that's why I think they're, I think they were really useful when there was no information. Like, you know, there's no blogs, there's no yeah. internet, but now it's getting less and less useful. I agree. And they're constantly, I know that, um, they're having to do a lot of shift in the way that their, their, their model is. And, um, we'll see if they succeed in it or not, but you're right. I think one of the reasons why they're having to make that shift is because, you know, those books at this point now are really only attractive to like the 40 and older crowd that just want, you know, Hey, you, you tell me what to do. Whereas a lot of kind of the younger crowd, um, we, we want to experience things that are maybe a little bit off the beaten path, or we want to try to figure it out on our own a little bit. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. So were you blogging about China just for fun in the beginning? Yeah. So my, my foray into online business started with a blog spot, you know, blog where I'm just, I'm just posting photos and just stupid stories just for my family and my friends to know where we were at because they couldn't believe that we had, it was literally, I think, I think, what is it? Longitude? Like it's, it's literally from Dallas. If you went straight up, we would end on the other side where we were at in, it was a city called Karamai. And so we were as far around the globe as most people could even imagine yeah, wow. from back at home. Um, and I remember the day, it was about a year into it where, you know, even I'm sure Johnny, as, as you look back into some of your archives where you kind of, you look back and you cringe like, Oh, that, that I can't believe I thought that was a good idea or I thought that was good writing or something like that. Well, how short? 
everything was in the beginning. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, and I mean, I've had, I've gone through and kind of purged a lot of that old stuff, but I do remember that moment when uh, I was at school teaching, obviously. And I started, and I looked at my analytics. I, I didn't look at them much, but it was like, it had shot up to, you know, a couple hundred visits for the day, which for me at the time was like, holy cow, what's going on. And, uh, and I realized that the, what was it? The, not the New York times, Oh, the Wall Street Journal had linked to something that I wrote. Oh, cool. And that was like the first moment that I realized other people, are, how did they find this? Yeah. Like other people are looking at this. And, and that was kind of a, a small shift for me where I was like, you know, this is, this is kind of cool to think that somebody else is benefiting from seeing the world from my perspective and, and where we're at in this unique place. That's actually exactly why I started blogging as well. I just liked putting down information. I thought it was kind of a fun hobby. And... Till this day, embarrassingly, johnnyfd.com is still built on Blogspot. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so afraid that Google one day is just going to not support, uh, like they, they call it Blogger now. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I'm just so afraid one day they're just going to be like, all right, sorry. Yeah. All your like six, seven years of stuff is gone. So I'm like, every, like, every time I write a new post, I export everything. Do you really? Yeah. And just like a manual backup into my Dropbox. But I don't even know how that export works because yeah. everything's on their servers. That's fascinating. I was forced off the Blogspot platform when China and Google had their big spat. Oh no! And yeah. Google moved to Hong Kong, and all of a sudden I couldn't access it without a VPN, um, which was still, you know, I didn't mind accessing with a VPN, but it was just as annoying that I couldn't access my own site. Yeah. Or people in China and, couldn't and nobody access else could either. Yeah. yeah. So I migrated over to my own, you know hosting and and obviously to wordpress and and i'm glad i did but I, yeah that's funny that you're still on there yeah i remember i had a really long layover like a seven or eight hour layover somewhere in i don't remember where it was in, in china and it's one of the cities and even at the airport lounge i couldn't get on any of my sites yeah you know and this is an international airport mm-hmm. but i couldn't get on facebook i couldn't check gmail and i couldn't edit my blog because it was on blogger yep and I remember complaining to the person at the front desk. I was like, hey, the internet's not, you know, like doesn't allow me to do anything. And she's like, no, it works. And I'm like, yeah, but I can't visit any sites. <laughs> and she's like, well, visit a different site. I'm like, that's not the way like it works. Yeah. But she was just like, I don't know if she was just afraid of, you know, saying something bad about the Chinese internet or government, mm, or yeah. she just generally is so ignorant. She's like, what's the big deal? Just go to the Chinese version or. Yeah. No, I, I do think it, it's surprising because there's a, there's two groups of people in China, like locals. You've got obviously the, the people that, cause you, if, if you go onto Instagram or you go onto Facebook, there are Chinese people there. So there's obviously people that are, that are accessing it and they understand, you know, VPNs and, and ways to get around the censorship. Um, but then you've got, and I think it would probably be a majority of folks in China that, like it, the reason Chinese censorship works so well is because people are oblivious. Like if, if they've grown up not knowing that Facebook exists or not knowing, you know, that all these things are accessible, then they, they just, re- they think to themselves that WeChat is, is everybody in the world uses WeChat, right? What's, what's this WhatsApp thing? Or everybody in the world uses Weixin. What, what in the world is Twitter? Like, so they've grown up with these, Chinese versions that are almost exact copies and, and in some ways just as successful in the Chinese market. Um, and they, they do just fine with it. And they're, yeah, a lot of people are completely ignorant to it. It's surprising. Yeah. I, I can definitely see that. It was ironic because I was so bored 
for seven hours. I couldn't watch YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't go on Instagram. I, couldn't, I literally, I was like, I don't even know what to do on the internet. You can't even get on Netflix. Yeah. Netflix doesn't stream nothing. There. And I just remember like thinking, okay, what can I use? And I was like, Yahoo, maybe Yahoo will work. <laughs> and I like go to Yahoo. And I'm like, okay, now what? Like, what do I search for? And I would search stuff, but then half the links wouldn't work. Yeah. And I'm just like, I have no idea even like, it's like I have internet, but I don't. Yep. You know, and thank, thank God. Uh, I finally found one thing that worked and it was playing games on the Hearthstone, uh, on Blizzard servers. Oh, really? Well, those are Chinese, I think, aren't they? Um, well, they have Chinese servers, but Blizzard's an American company. Oh, okay. But they, I mean, Chinese people love playing video games. Yeah. And I remember after literally two, three hours of the internet being like a crawl to, to, to text things, I got on the server and it was the fastest internet I've ever had, but only for this game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's one thing that's surprising to me, like, especially, you know, this having lived here in Thailand too, being in America, your cell phone bill is like insanely expensive. And not only that, but it's not that reliable. Like it, it works if I'm in Dallas, but, but then I go outside of Dallas, like the, 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 what would you coverage isn't as nice as, as what I've experienced here. I've gone on these unbelievably remote trips out in Western China. And I still have all my bars for, you know, when I was on my uh, Chinese, what was it? Unicom or something. And it was amazing. The, I think it's because their wireless infrastructure is, seems to be so much better than ours. And, and it's incredibly cheap too. I wonder if that's, you know, maybe like less density, you know, or less um, like tall buildings, or is it just, it's not, I don't know. Like, cause in Thailand is the same where I'll be on a boat scuba diving in the middle of the ocean and yeah. I have signal. <laughs> yeah. And in the U S like, you know, if you're on the beach, sometimes you don't get signal. Yeah. There's certain dead spots in my own house, you know, that don't get signal. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think in, in China, at least I can't speak for Thailand, but I know in China, I don't, I know very few people that own a landline, right? Because it's, it's just become, they, when they built their network, they built it almost directly for wireless. And so because of that, uh, they kind of had a leg up on, you know, America had to switch over and do a lot of, um, updating. Whereas for them, they were just building it, you know, from the ground up. Yeah. And a lot of like, like super third world countries, a lot of places in Africa, I think India, Sri Lanka, they, even wireless, you know, which like wireless internet, which we think of as, you know, this magical wireless thing, but really it's a router pl- plugged into a landline. A lot of those countries have skipped that and they're just basically mobile only. Hmm. So people keep asking me, you know, about Sri Lanka because it's kind of the new up and coming digital nomad destination. It's great hmm. for surfing. It's kind of like the new Bali. Yeah. And people are like, how's the Wi-Fi? And I'll say to them, oh, the Wi-Fi sucks, but... The mobile data is amazing. I, mean, I just tether off everything. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, I can't go if there's no Wi-Fi. And I say, like, no. Like, <laughs> you don't need Wi-Fi. Yeah. You can have 30 gigs of 4G for $4. Yeah. Like, it's probably cheaper than having Wi-Fi, and it's faster. Mm-hmm. And and I think we just still don't understand the concept of, like, what do you mean? Like, I can't just use my phone. Or I can't tether off my phone. But in countries like that, like, yes, you can. Yeah. Yeah, I think what's interesting is because I, I deal with a lot of people that are traveling to China, like a, a couple of my businesses have to do with specifically with traveling to China. And 
dealing with those issues where people don't know what to expect, right? I land in the airport and, you know, you obviously had, nobody had warned you that all these things are blocked. So if you, if people come in to travel for a couple of weeks, you know, that can be really an inconvenient if you didn't know that all that stuff was going to happen or how do I get change money, all that stuff. So part of what I do is helping those groups of people, but, but everything changes so fast. And one of the things that's been interesting for China, at least is now China is requiring facial scans for SIM cards. And it's one of those things where I don't even know if that's, if it's worth the cheap SIM card when it's like, why don't you, you know, just go ahead and do international roaming on your home plan. Uh, I used to say, forget your home plan. It's so expensive. Just, just get a cheap SIM card. But now China's collecting all this biometric data. It, it's kind of scary to me. Yeah. It's really like a episode of Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. And for anybody that, that knows much about Xinjiang, which is where uh, my wife and I lived for the longest time, um, it, China kind of uses that as a testing ground for all their surveillance um, stuff. Oh, so for God, example, yeah. like I remember getting off of the bus to go to our house and we would pass by at least, I think now it was nine different face scanning cameras and, um, you know, metal detectors just to get to our, just That's to get to insane. our apartment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it is insane. I know. Honestly, everything I know about China makes me not want to live there. No, no. I, and why did you stay for 10 years? So, we stayed at first because it was just so unique. Like it was, I, I really, if you like for a moment, let's just, especially for those of you guys who are listening, who know anything about what's going on in Xinjiang right now, because there's some human rights stuff and all that stuff. So put that for to the side. Lack of human rights. Lack of human rights. Exactly. <laughs> so let's put that, that to the side for just a moment. But like, it, it's a, a beautiful place. Like, I wish I could just show you around Johnny. Cause it, it like the, the, I, I went biking through the mountains and, and it's so pristine because it's not really been overrun by all the Chinese tourists and, and most international tourists don't even know, you know, it's just, it's too far. You know, people don't want to go that far out. And so you get the whole place to yourself and it, and it's amazing. And so, um, part of it was that part of it was that we had built, you know, I built a business kind of based on that. Um, and then, you know, we felt like we were, we were getting the opportunity to have an impact on like part of what I like about doing business is especially business globally is having, is being able to have a local impact wherever I'm at. Um, so being able to work with travel agencies within that region that were local travel agencies, not the, not the big global brands, yeah. the big, you know, national brands, but like the local travel agencies and see them benefit from working with me. Mm -hmm. I, that's what I loved being able to do. And so I'd say that's probably the the biggest reason we felt like we were just supposed to be there for for that amount of time. I can definitely see that, and actually, no, uh, kind of funny that you say that because after we had the Nomad Summit in Cancun, I was like, okay, you know, it was great, it was good, like, you know, I'm glad we had it here, but we're probably not going to come back. Hmm. But during that weekend, we had so many locals come up to me and just say, thank you for bringing all these people here. Because our really? tourism has been suffering lately with all the like bad media news, oh, yeah. our you know the weather, and then they had like the seaweed crisis on the beach, oh, man. which actually got cleaned up way before we got there. But you know, bad news sticks. Yeah. So yeah, for a few months they had a lot of seaweed covering the beaches, and it sucked and kind of destroyed the beach. It smelled, but then it's gone. But then you know the news still travels. The new yeah, or the, they don't update. They don't you know the news don't doesn't say now like oh now it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> They just, you know, so people will ask years later. I mean, I literally, I was talking about, uh, 
you know, going to Tbilisi, Georgia, and this German girl that I was hanging out with, she's like, yeah, but, aren't, you know, aren't they in war? And I was like, no. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, but, you know, I met some, you know, people, you know, uh, some, some people who left Georgia because they were in war. And I was like, when was this? She's like, oh, I think maybe 10 years ago. I'm like, yeah, they were in war 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> like, but it's, that was literally 10 years ago. I mean, like, Germany was in war 10 years ago, probably. Yeah. And so during that, uh, that, that weekend, we were in Cancun. And then also, again, the week after in Plano Carmen, I had so many local business owners and even there's like the staff, you know, the, the waiters and the security guards come up and say, thank you for bringing all these people to Cancun and to Plano Carmen because it's our low season week. And, uh, the only tourist we get now is during those two weeks of spring break. Yeah. And it made me think, man, you know, I, f- I feel like a responsibility of just kind of, showing people like hey this is a cool place it's safe it's clean now like it's it's you know it's a place that we should be visiting and helping out and if we can why wouldn't we yeah no i think that's one of the things that bothers me about a little bit about and i'm gonna go in my soapbox for just a moment but like that influencer marketing like even when i was out in in xinjiang i would get emails from people who are like, Hey, if you take me on a free, this free that, and you give me all these things, then I'll post about your, you know, your company on, on Instagram. And, you know, like I've been reading a lot of people do nowadays. It's just like, no, I mean, I appreciate it, but I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll do without, like, I, I would rather approach a place, not with what can they give me so that I can just post about it as opposed to like, what, what can I do to leave an impact on that place that I'm at? You know, I, I hope and pray that I actually left some impact up in Northwest China. And I don't know what I'll be able to do here, but, you know, I hope that there's something here that I can contribute. But it's not, hey, you know, what, how, how much can I leech off of this culture? It's, um, you know, how can, you know, I use the, the blessing of this business to, you know, impact the people that are around. I like it. So what actually is your business? I mean, you have so much going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so I finally, over the past couple of years, nailed down what I would like to call it because it's, it is a media business. And I think that's been a shift in my mindset recently, uh, recently being the last year or two, where instead of just saying I'm a blogger or I'm a, you know, I'm a writer or something like that, I actually, I'm, I'm a media company. We've, I've got, we've got podcast, we've got a team that, that runs podcasts that has, you know, physical books. Um, that does email marketing that has it, it basically it's, it's an umbrella company for 16 different websites that are run having to do with a lot of different topics. But a lot of those are ones that I've either built or bought, um, some that I've sold, but the idea just being I've, I've worked out a process for myself and my team where we can optimize and monetize in a way that, that really comes out on top. I love it. And you've been very successful with this business. You know, you're, I remember one of the first kind of talking points of, of your Nomad, upcoming Nomad Summit talk was how you, uh, did you build and then sell the website for $120,000? Yeah. Which, you know, that by itself, you just said, period, that's something that people would want to learn. But what was really cool is kind of throughout the rest of the talk, you had broken down how that would have been, that was a nice starting point. But with what you've learned since and what you could have done, that $120,000 could have been worth how much more? 
Yeah. No, it definitely could have. And even as I look back at the site now, the guy that bought it, I mean, I don't know who it was, but he's just kind of let it sit there. Like there's a different types of investors. And I think he was just one of those buy it and squat on it type of things, which is sad because I, you know, I invested a lot of time and energy into to building it. And now it just looks like it's sitting there wasting a little bit. I'm sure it's still making money for him, but it's, it's not being built, but it's not, it's not living up to its, its potential. It's almost like someone buying a house to kind of fix a flip but they don't fix it and they, they just sell it for the same amount. After. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Right. And, but I do remember sitting down because at this point I had had, I didn't have a team and i had had a couple different websites and this was like the outlier. I love to play guitar. It was a guitar website. Um, but everything else had to do with travel. And then I had this one guitar that I'd kind of built from it scratch. Did, it kind of didn't fit what else you were doing. It yeah. didn't. And as I was talking with a mentor of mine, he, he was kind of saying, you know, what is it? You know, cause I said, I, I could potentially maybe just hire somebody to run it. And he's like, yeah, but would it always be taking up processing yeah, power in, in your brain? And it would. And so he's like, so then you, you know, it might be good unless you want to really devote time to it to just get rid of it. So let's say this guy gave you back that site for, you know, 420 grand. If you spend a year with your team and kind of your processes now, what do you think you can get that site to be worth? Oh gosh. I, I think it's, uh, it's really, I don't want to say limitless. But you can double it. Oh yeah, no, that would be easy. I I don't think it's it, and it, and I say that would be easy. That that sounds kind of cocky. I think, um, what I think is there's just too many people that that are doing a ho hum job. That if you even just do a kind of good job, that it, and and you're willing to be patient, right? I think that's the big thing. Is it's not like I started these websites and one year later, like the, that guitar website I was working on for four years. So really, if you, if you consider the fact that I started from zero and then I sold it for 120 and granted, we're not taking into account the monthly income that came from that to bring it to that point, but still it's not a huge website, but it was a great learning experience. It's fantastic. And to a lot of people listening, you know, especially on somewhere cheap like Thailand or, or China, you know, the $120,000 could be life changing for them. Yeah. But also how much was it making per month on average? Uh, it would, that would be $44,000 a month on average. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, to live in a place like, uh, Chiang Mai or, you know, probably in China as well, $4,000 a month is way more than enough to live here, yeah. travel, still save. And then the fact that you could either scale it up to be worth way more and have higher monthly income or to be able to sell it for 120 grand or, if they followed, you know, your new steps, kind of what you've learned since selling that, maybe they could have sold it for, you know, two hundred fifty thousand, it's a quarter million dollars, or maybe even, you know, half a million or more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I'm I'm preparing well, I can't say that right now. I'm contemplating. Uh, my my kind of business mastermind group has challenged me to think about selling a portion of my business right now. And if I were to do that, um, using some of the stuff that I'm, I'm sharing in, in the talk. Um, I sold my first website for a multiple of 30, which is kind of the average right now for online businesses. And I feel like I could sell my current business for a multiple of 40 to 45, maybe a little bit more. I don't know. Um, I just, because it has a really long history and the processes are there and it's really good. Uh, and if I could do that, I mean, we're talking about a million five, a million eight for something like that. And that, that could do huge. I mean, but then again, you, you got to keep in, in mind that we're foregoing monthly profits for a one-time payout. And for that site, how much is the monthly profits coming in right now? 
Uh, it's, it depends. It's between 30 and 50,000. That's amazing. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's and how, how big's your team? Uh, I've got four people now. No, I just, I just hired my, I hired an executive assistant. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's amazing. Yeah. And you're paying 800 bucks a month for your <laughs> rent. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, that's been, yeah. And that's not even paid for by the business. That's paid for by two rental properties that are back in America. Yeah. Yeah. This is amazing. And the fact that this is possible. You know, mm. it's, it, you know, it's not easy, but it's possible. And we are so fortunate to live in a day and age where we can, you know, pick up, you know, move to another country, learn the language, import our dog if we wanted to, <laughs> you know, rent an apartment or a house, you know, probably yeah. month to month or, you know, on a, on a, you know, on a short contract with that's furnished, right? And all they ask is you for you to clean the drapes when you leave. Like this wasn't possible even in our parents' generation and definitely not in our grandparents' generation. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people who only take that first step of just saying, okay, well, I'm going to go travel. I'm going to live as cheap as possible. And that's okay to do, especially in the beginning. But you're kind of living proof that you don't have to just live off of 600 bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month and just get by. Yeah. You know, you can have a family, you know, you can have kids, you can have a dog, you can have a house, you can have, a, you know, you make an impact locally, you know, wherever you are and not just leech off the system. And I think that's really, really cool. And I applaud you for that. Well, thanks. I, you know, one of the things that I think, um, everybody should, like I had to keep in mind for myself is just if let, let's say you do, you've kind of maintained a certain level of income for a while and then somehow maybe something clicks or you're able to really do something well and it jumps up and the inclination is want to, is to want to then increase your, your lifestyle to go with it. And, you know, I, I could, I could live in California or I could, I could afford a Tesla if I wanted to, but right now that's not my priority. Like I'm living in a house that, you know, rents for $800 a month. I'm living, you know, I've got a car that is what is essentially a soccer mom minivan, you know, and I've got a scooter, but like, I, I don't necessarily, I, I spend on things that are really important to me, but I don't necessarily increase my lifestyle just because. I've got the finances to allow it. Well, what's worse is what most people are doing in the U.S. is they're increasing their lifestyle on leverage. Yeah. So even though they have the brand new BMW or the really nice house, you know, that's, you know, designed by an interior designer, they have, you know, fancy clothes, they have cool cars. Most of them, like they're, you know, are not actually wealthy. They may look rich. Yeah. But their actual wealth is in the negatives because everything has a mortgage on it. Everything has a car payment on it and they have nothing but liabilities hmm. versus what you're doing. And what the smart thing to do would be is to, you know, increase your business. So you're making more money, but not increase your lifestyle. And that way you have all that extra that even if you just put into a savings account, it would, you know, you'd be good, well off. But if you then invested it, you'd be, you know, really set for life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is key. Like, how are you investing not just the money that you're receiving, but even just your time, right? How are you investing the time that we have? Because that's something that's equal for all of us. And, um, for me, it's a huge priority that I invest time in my boys. Um, and my business gives me the freedom to do that where, you know, one of my boys is in school right now, so I can come here in the middle of the afternoon and, and record this with you. And then I can, you know, I've got like three team calls tonight after 9 PM and I work, you know, either like a couple hours during the, you know, a few hours during the day and then a lot at night. Um, 
that is obviously one negative of living across the world is, you know, do the time zone changes are not fun. <laughs> uh, where does the rescue team live? Most of them right now are in the U.S. Convince them to move out here. I know. Well, I'm getting one of them's coming out in February. I oh, hope. great. Okay. And then two others might be moving. We'll see. Yeah. Come come watch you at the Nomad Summit. You'd be like, <laughs> you guys got to come out here, yeah. hang out for a few weeks, hang out for a month, and then just. The, 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 I guarantee a lot of them will just stay. Yeah, I think it just takes that that, that first, first trip, yeah. and that's what I like about the Nomad Summit as well. There's so many people that make it kind of their calendar mecca, where they're like, okay, by this time next year, I'm going to be there in person. And that normally what that involves for a lot of people is pre-planning six months or three months or whatever it is and saying, all right, well, before I go there, I need to get rid of my stuff, get rid of my apartment, maybe lease out my house for the for income for that, uh, you know, start working online, have some kind of income or whatever it is. So, I mean, a lot of people would just say, all right, well, it's, it's in two weeks. Okay, I'll just buy a plane ticket and go out. Yeah. But I think the I, what I really respect are the people that are like, okay, next year I'm going to be – I'm going to move out there. You know, I'm going to get out there in January. I'm going to stay, you know, six months or, you know, maybe even forever. And I, th- yeah. I think it's it's been a really cool experience meeting those people saying, you know what? Like, if it wasn't for this conference, I probably would have put it off forever. But yeah. I knew this was happening, you know, January 17th, 2020. I had to be out there by then. Yeah. If you were to say to anybody that, like, what what's the one thing that maybe the Chiang Mai conference has that 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 is unique to that versus maybe the Cancun or the well, you did one in Nevada or something, Las Vegas. Yeah, I did one in Vegas. Those are all fun. Yeah, but Chiang Mai is where it all started. Okay, a lot of people don't really realize this because because you know there's all these other nomad hotspots now, mm-hmm. but Chiang Mai is really where it started. I mean, sure, there's been people working online everywhere, right? Yeah. But in 2013, the term digital nomad or remote work wasn't that popular. You know, if you looked at the Google Trends, it was, it was pretty low. In Chiang Mai, it was like a group of like 10, 20, 30 people that kind of grew to 40, 50, 60. And at the first Nomad Summit five years ago, this is our sixth one that we're having, hmm. we had like 100 people. And that was all the people in Chiang Mai. <laughs> like pretty much everyone came. Yeah. And then the next year, you know, it, it almost doubled. You know, it had close to 200. And then the next year at 300. And then last year we had 400. Hmm. And then, you know, who knows? Maybe this year can, you know, hopefully we can get 400 again. Maybe it can be even bigger. But it's it's grown so much. And the reason why Chiang Mai is so special is because I've been to all the other hubs. I've been to Bali. I've been to Mexico now. I've been all over Europe. There's nothing like Chiang Mai. Hmm. Like Chiang Mai is a really, really special place. And it's hard to explain why. Like, yeah, sure, people come because of low cost of living, the good food, nice people. Yeah. But the community here is completely different than everywhere else. And at least during January, during the Nomad Summit, there are probably a thousand nomads in town, you know, and hopefully you can get all of them to come to the Nomad Summit, but usually at least half of them are there. Yeah. And a lot of them are at the other events kind of surrounding it. So it's a time to like really be surrounded. I mean, where else can you be surrounded by 400 other people? That have picked, packed their stuff, left the country, started yeah. took, took the ch- you know taking the chance to start their business, and also really invest in themselves. Are really open minded and optimistic. You know, they're the ones that know they can do it. They've invested time, they invested money, they invested a plane ticket. You know, yeah, to come out here and because they want to meet other people doing it. And it's completely different than meeting someone online or meeting someone in your local co-working space in your home city. Yeah. Like these are people who have taken that step. Yeah. And that's what makes it so special. 
Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to your talk. I've already heard the first draft of it. I know people are going to get so much value out of it. Cool. So, guys, January 17th to the 20th, 2020, make sure you're in Chiang Mai. I don't care if you have to sell your dog <laughs> to get out of here. <laughs> don't sell your dog. <laughs> I don't care what you have to do. Get out here to Chiang Mai. Come in person. Come meet Josh. Come hang out with me. Come out. Come hang out with everyone else. If you really can't make it this year, put it in your calendar for next year and subscribe to our email list at nomadsummit.com, to our YouTube channel, uh, search for Nomad Summit, and you'll still get access to the talks. But coming and meeting people in person, it's it's so different. So, Josh, if people want to reach out, they want to learn more about you, they want to check out some of your books, how can they reach you? Um, I mean, really, it's just if you just search for Josh Summers, there's one guy that does yoga. That's not me. Ah, and not then <laughs> everything else, uh, having to do with China, my primary brand was far West China for the longest time. Uh, but my company's go West ventures. It's, I love it. Yeah. By the way, how's your Chinese? It's good. Yeah. I, it, I feel like the more that you do language, the, the deeper, the hole you realize it is, but yeah, I, I get along pretty well. Can we say something like, um, you know, buy guys come, you know, come out to Thailand and, and, just whatever you want to say in Chinese. Uh, like, yeah, <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.